Welcome to Living Wisely, Living Well, timeless wisdom to enrich every day with Asha Nayaswamy, one of the spiritual directors of Ananda Palo Alto and a founding member of Ananda Worldwide. If you enjoy this content and are inspired by the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda and his disciple Swami Kriyananda, find Asha on YouTube, Facebook, all podcast directories, and her website, ashajoy.org. Living Wisely, Living Well, January 1st. Resolve difficulties by raising your level of consciousness. Keep your mind focused at the point midway between the eyebrows, the seat of super-consciousness. Well, January 1st for a year-long study, one day at a time. I don't know how many of you are actually doing it on the actual dates, But nonetheless, here it is, January 1st. Swamiji just lays it out to us so that we'll know what the foundation stone is here. Raise your level of consciousness. Focus your mind at this point between the eyebrows. Live from super-consciousness. Well, that's pretty much that, you know. I've been talking and talking and talking for a long time. We'll be talking on this for um, many weeks. But Swami really has given us the basis of it here. Um, in Autobiography of a Yogi, Paramhansa Yogananda says, Thoughts are not individually based, but they are universal. He said, As individuals, we do not create our own thoughts. We merely attune ourselves to levels of consciousness that are universal. And when we attune ourselves to a particular vibration, that vibration creates within us thoughts that are appropriate to that vibration. Um, that's a lot of words, and that's just a very interesting concept. And depending on how tuned in you are to this way of thinking, it's extremely um, life-changing to begin to understand this. And it, it all actually has to do with the question, which actually forms the sadhana, the spiritual practice, of certain lines of uh, gurus and disciples where the virtually the entire practice is the simple question, who am I? And we ask that question deeper and deeper, who am I? Well, I'll give my name, but I, well, I in fact have changed my name because when I got into a spiritual community, I shifted from the name my parents gave me to the name my teacher gave me. But I was a child, and who am I? I am the name that I have and the body that I have. But when I was two years old, I had a very different body than I have now. When I was 30, I had a very different body than I have now. But I still would call say, this is who I am. I've changed my way of thinking um, a number of times in my life. I've come onto the spiritual path very young and changed my lifestyle, changed my ambitions. Who am I? And yet there is this constant recognizable point of view that I consider to be I, that tends to look out through these eyes and remembers its experiences and defines itself by those experiences. But what happens after I die? Who am I after I die? Well, some people will say, well, you cease to exist. The I ceases to exist. But what about all those people who have near-death and return experiences who really tell us that when, when we leave the body, there is still an I And then there's a wonderful um, modern, not modern, but really interesting 
way it's stated in a book by Michael Singer, his book called The Surrender Experiment. And he starts talking about the fact that there's always a voice going on in our heads, but there's also somebody listening to that voice. So we tend to think of ourselves as the one talking, but if we're the one talking, who is the one that's listening? (laughs) And the one that's listening often has a contradictory point of view to the one who's talking. And he, he, in his wonderful book, he, he talks about the thoughts in your head are being spoken by your roommate, is how he gets you to think about it. When I said modern, what I mean is a very clever, sort of uh, non-metaphysical, extremely practical, no, not non-metaphysical, that's not right, but the language is so practical, the language is so real, the language is so down-to-earth. My roommate is talking to me all the time. If it was actually your roommate in another body talking to you, you would discriminate as to whether that body was telling you the truth or not. But because it's inside our heads, we tend to, to believe it more than we would believe it if it's a roommate. But if somebody's gauging whether it's true or not, who is that? So that's the question of I. And then there's the question of I, given identification with the physical body. It's our physical body that gives us the strong impression that we are, we are unique and separate. Uniqueness to a large extent, but especially separateness. Because I have always been living in this body, and it has always identified consistently, even if its name changed in its early 20s, it is still identified consistently with where this body is in time and space, what it's doing, who its parents are, who its siblings are, what its preferences are, what its um, ethnic ethnicity, its cultural heritage. There's this extremely consistent that is unique to my perspective. I have, you know, I have, I have siblings, but they're not me. You know, I have dear friends, but they're not me. I have relatives, but they're not me. But then sometimes something happens and there is such a feeling of unity, either with the cosmos as a whole or with one or two individuals when you share some really profound experience. I've never been pregnant but I've been told by many new fathers and mothers that when that newborn is placed in your hands, in your arms, the all, all sense of division stops. I remember the first uh, friend I had who became a mother. She became a mother early, so I was probably about 20 at that time. And she came to visit me when her child was a young toddler. And we were just sitting in the small house that I lived in at that time. And like many small toddlers, her son was somewhat incorrigible. I mean, he just didn't have a a clear sense of boundaries. And he was just moving continuously through the house. He was a very active lad as he remained his entire life. And he was curious and he had a very uh, avid mind. And he was looking and getting into everything. My house wasn't toddler-proof. So my friend had to continually get up from what we were doing, interrupt, well, not exactly interrupt, she would just keep it going. But she also had to keep constant track of her toddler to keep him from wrecking my house or wrecking himself. And after a while, because it was the first time a peer of mine was demonstrating motherhood, I just said after maybe an hour, how do you stand this? How can you just live when you're just constantly being interrupted? Now, I never had children, but I have a natural instinct for motherhood. So it wasn't 
like I really thought it was a horrible thing to do. It was just like, you know, this is crazy. This is a never stopping. She sort of looked at me, and it was actually, it was, her answer was wonderful. She gave me a slightly quizzical look. And then after a moment, she sort of tuned in. She took her a moment even to understand what I was asking. And then she laughed, and she said, Oh, you look at me and my son, and you think there are two of us. She said, I think there's only one of us. My son and I are just simply one. This is no intrusion on me. This is me. And that kind of unity. Now, we think of it as natural between a mother and her, and her son or her child, a father and his child. But why would it not be true for the rest of humanity? What is it that makes that one? What if the child is adopted? You know, so there's no actual biological connection, but the relationship is there. What if you're the mother of a household of orphans and you take care of all those orphans? What if you're running a company and you're, you extend your sense of well-being to include all of your employees and you make all your decisions on the basis also of what they need? Where is the boundary of I? Where does it, where does it end? You go out into nature sometimes and sometimes just have experiences that are just beyond your comprehension. A, a really astonishing book I read, I read, I read two or three books that emanated from the same incident many decades ago. A, a South American soccer team, could have been Uruguay, but I'm not sure, was crossing over the Andes and the plane crashed. Many people were killed immediately, but a, a percentage of them, a group of them, a dozen maybe, maybe less, um, didn't die, and in fact lived for several months in the high Andes in this crash plane. And eventually, uh, two of the men walked out and rescued them. So there's a book, just for the sake of your reading, there's a book by the two men who walked out, by one of the men who walked out. There's another book called Alive, by one of the men who was in the stayed in the snow there. But among the things that come through in that book are some of the people there had astonishing spiritual experiences. Transcendent experiences that totally transcended any sense of individuality and united them in those extreme circumstances with all of humanity and all of creation. So then comes the question, who am I? If I, from this identification with this body, can yet know myself to be much more than this body, what are the limits of that possible identification? If my awareness can expand even to include my child, that means it can expand beyond one. How far can it expand? And so that's what Swamiji is talking to us, raising our level of consciousness. Because to identify exclusively with this individual ego housed in this particular body, what to speak of reincarnation. Is that who I am? A friend of mine, her name was Bella. She died of breast cancer. Her mother had died before her. Her sister died after her, all at relatively young age. It was just a genetic pattern that they carried. She was a very deeply devoted meditator. And so she had a, a tremendous sense of herself beyond this incarnation and beyond that one body. But in the last days of her life, it, it really became dramatic for her. She was quite lucid 
very close to the end. And, and a friend came to visit her, and she was lying on what was actually her deathbed. She never got up from that bed. And, and she said that she had been lying there, and thousands of faces, I believe she said thousands, thousands of faces, each one individual and unique, were, she just was seeing them all in vision. They were all passing in front of her. And she was conscious of the fact that at one time or another, each one of those has been, had been the face she was wearing, the face that she saw in the mirror, the, the face that she called I, myself. And so she said to my friend, it was very hard to be concerned about losing the face she was presently wearing in the context of how many faces she had worn. Now, that is a level of consciousness. Most of the time when our bodies are active, we just identify with this body because we never think about it. But when this body begins to die away, literally, or becomes, we become less identified with it, maybe because of a state of meditation or because of a gift of grace. We become less identified with it. Suddenly we identify with a much greater reality, or we feel the body dying, and we're vividly aware of the fact that the observer, the consciousness that is really me, has only just been inhabiting this body. It is not this body. That's a different level of awareness, which is to say a level of consciousness, that we can touch into. So Swamiji is telling us here that every time we have a difficulty, the difficulty is always a question of who am I, what do I identify, I, what do I identify as and with, where do I think my suffering comes from, where do I think my happiness comes from. And it's all a perspective. And it's a perspective literally of consciousness. The closer we move into superconscious which is where the little self begins to connect to the infinite self, the more we live at the chakra between the spiritual eye instead of one of the lower centers in our body, one of the um, less, less comprehensive, I don't exactly how to say it, from the spiritual eye we see the whole perspective. The more we identify with the spiritual eye and less with the chakras through which the energy flows to the spiritual eye, the more everything is different. So Swami just starts by saying, whenever you have a difficulty, change your level of consciousness. Change your level of consciousness and you change everything. So he says, resolve difficulties by raising your level of consciousness. Keep your mind focused at the point midway between the eyebrows, the seat of super consciousness. God bless you, my friends. Our work is made possible by inspired listeners, so if you feel to support Asha, you can make a one-time donation, or for unique members-only content, subscribe through Patreon. Blessings and thank you.